I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. It's usually the simple stuff in Christianity that I think is the most important. It's the simple stuff that we tend to go, oh, I already know that. But that's actually the most important that we that we know it, but we don't know it sometimes in our lives. We don't know it sometimes with our feet, you know, with the way we're living it out. And so we're going to be talking about one of the simple things today, which is what it means to follow Jesus based upon the text of Mark chapter 1. Just reading what he says to his disciples as he first calls them. We're also going to look at the teaching style of Jesus, which I find to be really interesting. His teaching style and what they noted about his style, and his first encounter with a demon. That's all here today in Mark chapter 1. Um, so this is part 6 in our verse-by-verse series through the Gospel of Mark, the Mark series, I'm calling it. We're covering theology, apologetics, historical insights, and simple verse-by-verse contextual teaching, not forgetting to apply it into our lives, uh, because that's where the transformation comes. So we're starting here in Mark 1, verse 16. We're going to read through verse 20 and just gather the passage. Like you're just kind of reading it, soak it in, pay attention to the words, and then we'll go through it more carefully. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. So what's like some big picture stuff here? Um, These are the first disciples in the Gospel of Mark. These are the first disciples of Jesus actually called to follow him. He doesn't seem to have had disciples before this. In this sense. That's how it seems, at least from the Gospel of Mark. There's obviously things we don't know about Jesus' life, things we don't know that we could try to we try to piece together through the through the information we have. But it seems he didn't have them. And that Simon Peter, I say Simon Peter because Simon is Peter, same guy, and then Andrew, his brother, and then James and John, who are also brothers. So two sets of brothers. And they respond right away. They leave their family businesses to follow Jesus. So this was like a very literal kind of follow me. They actually follow him. They actually start tracking with him, traveling with him, spending time with him. Um, And then Jesus, he's going to make them into fishers of men. We'll talk about that some more. So in several ways, embedded in the text, um, this is like, I think, a model for us to follow, of what it means to follow Jesus. I think it's right there in the text. I think that it's recorded for a reason for us today of followers of Jesus to apply these things. But this moment is actually really radical for a couple reasons that we might not notice if we don't know some of the historical context behind it. So without boring you, which I have never done anyways, I mean, really, (laughs) um, without hopefully boring you, I will try to share some historical, like cultural, contextual insights that I think are relevant, not just look at what I know, because I find that annoying just like you do. So... um, what does it mean, follow me? Um, it seems to mean becoming the disciple of a rabbi. That's what it seems to mean. When we, when we look at it in the context, and the culture, it's like, he's not just like, hey, wherever I go, you go. That's part of it, but that's not all that it is. The idea is a rabbi, he's a traveling teacher. Jesus is going around, he's, he's preaching, and he's like, hey, you come follow me, you'll learn my ways, and I'll teach you to do things, certain ministry things, certain like ways of serving God. And he tells them it's going to be to catch men. It'll be their main focus. Um, so it seems to mean become the disciple of a rabbi, which is like an official position. 
It's not casually following. It's like you're an official disciple. Um, Rabbis, though, they didn't usually appeal to people to follow them. This was like really weird for their time and their culture. Like a rabbi doesn't go up to you and say, hey, you, come be my disciple. Like that just doesn't happen. Instead, it's usually the rabbi who is appealed to by the people. You come and if, say Kirk's the rabbi, and I'm like, Kirk, can I be your disciple? And you'd be like, well, do you have the proper qualifications? You know, and then, and then he would scrutinize me and decide whether or not I was worthy to follow him. Jesus, he initiates. He's the one saying, I want you to follow me. And I think this is really interesting because the application is pretty obvious, isn't it? Jesus, he says, I want you to follow me. Not, you have to have these special skills. I'm going to seek you first. Before you're even thinking of him, he's already calling on you. He's already seeking for you to know him. And that's, like I said, this is simple, but it's so sweet. Like just to think, when I was not thinking of the Lord at all, he was reaching out to me for me to come and know him and follow him. So um, there's a question here. Did they know Jesus already or not? Because it seems a little strange. I remember being young, like just my first time through the word. For some reason, I remember that time going through scripture more than any other, I think. And I remember reading this and thinking, boy, that, they must have had some spiritual insight to know Jesus was the guy to follow because they left like family. They left their jobs and they just start following Jesus. Did they know him before? But it seems as though they actually did know of Jesus before. In John chapter 1, we read that they were present at the, at the maybe not at the exact baptism. But, well, actually, it, I'm inclined to think they were present at the actual baptism of Jesus and then for a time after that, and that they were with John the Baptist for a season before they were with Jesus. And there's a couple reasons for this. First off, we have uh, John the Baptist being recorded as talking and them being their witnesses, hearing about Jesus from him. So that's before this event in Galilee. This is still um, with John the Baptist. Then in Acts chapter, tw- chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, after Judas has hanged himself, they need one more to fill up the 12 because they would go in groups of two. At least that's why I'm thinking they wanted 12. They wanted groups of two. So they're like, we need one more to replace Judas. And they lay out the qualifications. How can you be one of us, one of the 12? Right? Which was not only were they disciples, they were the 12. But part of that was them being disciples. At any rate, Acts 1, 21 and 22 says this. So one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they wanted one of these, the new member of the 12, they wanted them to be uh, with Jesus from the baptism of John, not just from the Sea of Galilee. So it seems as though they did know Jesus. What's the difference This is the official full-time calling. Before they were learning from Jesus, they were listening to Jesus, they were like, whoa, you know, who is he? Look, John has pointed us to him and they're they're, they're tracking with him somewhat. But now they're full-time, leave their positions, leave their jobs, they're going to follow Jesus, stay with him 24 hours a day. That's a different kind of thing. So that's, that's what's happening here. Now, rabbis would generally, when they call the disciple, they would put them through some tests Uh, Like I said, they would require qualifications, different kinds of qualifications. Maybe you have to have a certain amount of Torah knowledge. You got to be able to recite a certain amount of 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 the of the scriptures to be able to. Or maybe they quiz you, you know, like why did Moses do this? You know, like maybe they try to figure out what you know. Or maybe they require certain lifestyle things. You know, like well, you're not wearing the right clothes. You you don't have the right you know all the extra traditions. You're not observing those kinds of things. They had lots of qualifications. Jesus shows up. Not only does he appeal to them, but he asks. No qualifications. Like they're fishermen. No qualifications of any kind. 
Except later on in Luke chapter 9, we learn about the one qualification for following Jesus. And they did do this. We see that they did this. If I read the qualification, you'll be like, yeah, they did do that. Luke chapter 9, verse 57, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I want to be your disciple, right? And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Implication? You need to be willing to suffer if you want to follow me. To be in lack. Verse 59, And he said to another, Follow me. Now Jesus appeals to someone to follow him. But he said, Lord, permit me to first go and bury my father. Which is, is not to say goodbye to my parents, but I'm, it, it seems like he was like, I'm going to go and stay with my parents. Maybe that'll be a year. Maybe that'll be 10 years. Wait and you know, take care of them. And then after they die, I'll come follow you. I think, that, I think that that was what was going on there. And Jesus says to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. So there's a priority shift. You need to let me be your top priority. And then another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus often spoke with hyperbole. It's, it's like extreme words to get the point across. If you're going to follow me, I am your top priority. That's that's it. Jesus he doesn't need you to be qualified, like skilled, knowledgeable, anything like that. He needs you to be committed. So he doesn't require qualifications. He requires commitment. That's the thing. That's the thing Jesus seems to require. Following Jesus requires commitment to Jesus, not just acknowledging Jesus. Not just an intellectual, oh yeah, no, I, Jesus is real. Like, I agree with that. Yeah. But there's a sense of commitment that's there. And, he, and Luke 9.23 it says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That Jesus is saying, we need to do this. We need to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily to follow him. So it's just the idea of commitment. And this is so simple and so basic Christianity. Your commitment to Christ, that's the thing he's asking you to do. When he says, follow me, he's not asking you to be righteous. He's not asking you to be skilled. He's not asking you to be perfect, to qualify. But if you're going to play this thing out, if you're going to keep seeking Jesus, he's got to be number one. It's really, it's really basic. But maybe because of that, we sometimes miss it. I think maybe we sometimes miss it. So we need to take this seriously. Jesus, even over me. I'm going to take up my cross daily and follow him. So Jesus, even over me. And that is like such a healthy place when you're there as a Christian. When Jesus is more important than me. I think that's just the right way to be. And of course, he takes care of me. He provides for me. He he does it all, so I have nothing to worry about because whose hands am I in? He's not asking me to follow him unto, unto like horrible, a horrible future and hopeless time. Yes, there will be temporary suffering, but it's glory to come. I just got to put him first. So then there's the, the training that they're supposed to get. Um, they, a lot of times they would get training before they got into a rabbi's discipleship program. But with Jesus, they have zero training. And then he says, no, no, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to train you. And so we come with no qualifications. We say by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. And then he begins to do the work in us to enable us to serve him. So they left. They, they, they follow him. They leave their family. They leave their nets. Uh, James and John left their father and hired servants, which implies that James and John were actually part of a successful business. That's the implication. Uh, not only were they doing their own thing, they're mending their nets, in the, but they also have hired servants, and it's a family business. Their father is there as well. And they leave all of those things. 
Now, does that just say they exactly abandoned their family? No. We'll see them later on still engaging with their families, interacting with their families. Um, it's to say that they reordered their priorities and they went where God called them to go. Um, some people have <clears throat> said, um, you know, go ahead and leave your family to follow Jesus. And I, I think that that's very reckless to say that. The point of it is priorities need to be set properly. Jesus is my top priority. This doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily walk away from anybody. In fact, most of us are not really called, I think, to leave our careers as part of our discipleship and following Jesus. The 12 were. And we learned from their example, but I don't think we're called to the same thing. Or else the whole church becomes just a poverty-stricken with our hands out to the world all the time. Hey, we need more people to get saved because we, we ran out of money. <laughs> you know, and we can't feed ourselves and stuff. And uh, no, So we're definitely not all called to career changes in following Jesus. We're, we're all called to priority changes in following Jesus. That's the idea. So they leave. The training comes later. Um, in fact, later they talk about this. In Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark 10, 28, one of the disciples says to Jesus, we have left all and followed you. Like they were aware of what they'd left behind to follow Jesus and they bring it up later. We'll get, we'll get there in Mark 10. But it may not have hit you how amazing this is yet. And all that information I share with you, it may not have hit you how crazy this, this, this event is. And with no exaggeration, I think it's one of the most amazing things ever that we just read about. Imagine God decides to visit us. He comes in human form. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. And he sees you fishing. And he says, you, follow me. God wants you to know him and follow him. No qualifications, just commitment. Right? No, no skills, just his enablement, his training, his work in your life. All of it. And this is what Jesus does for us. They're the model for us. God says to you, I want you to know me. I want you to follow me. Don't ever forget, as, as I used to say, I don't, I don't use this phrase too much anymore because I feel like it's a little reckless, but we say it's, a, it's about relationship, not religion. Reality, it's, it's a, I mean, Christianity is a religion, so it's really both. But, but our religion, it has a real relationship with God. That's the point, I think, to be more careful with our words. This is a real relationship with God. God is saying, I want you to know me and to follow me. There are the doctrines of Christianity, right? But you're not just adopting the doctrines of Christianity. You're engaging in a living relationship with the God of creation. And he says, I want you to know me. I want you to follow me. I want you to learn from me. That's the reality of your calling. It should blow your mind. And this can help us in a lot of situations because sometimes we get caught between the two extremes of like liberty versus legalism. You know, where we're, say you're, you're deciding, what, what, should I watch this TV show? You know, and, and, you're, and you're debating in your mind. As a genuine follower of Christ, you're like, is this okay? Is this? And you see someone over here and they're like, oh, psh, don't worry about it. It's just legalists complain about people watching this. And then somebody over here is like, oh, dude, that's worldly, man. What are you doing? And, um, and you're going like, what do I do? What do I do? I think if we remember that we're, we're not just holding to the doctrinal principles of Christianity. We do hold those. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking those. Those are hugely important things. But in this, I'm following Jesus. So I can find myself in these tough choices about holiness in my life, about the difference between liberty versus legalism and all that. And I can simply ask, how do I follow Jesus in this? And for me, this is really helpful. Because oftentimes... I realize it's not just about the math of the problem. Sometimes it's about the principle of following Jesus in this thing. And that like keeps me from splitting hairs the wrong way. I think it's really practical to just ask that. 
I remember debating this when I was younger. I was thinking about doing this this one thing, and I'm like, is that the Lord, not the Lord? And I just thought, like, well, is it following Jesus? And I was like, no, it's not. You know, like, it was really obvious to me, and I my, my inner motives became exposed when I asked the right question. And so that can be good. So they get a new occupation when they follow Jesus, according to this passage. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Um, preaching the gospel is kind of like fishing when you think about it. In fishing, you cast out the net and you just see what you can catch. You might catch fish, you might not. You go out and you do it again. And then preaching the gospel, you just cast out the gospel and you see who gets caught by it, who gets brought in by the gospel, and you just keep doing it again and again and again. And they'd had times probably where they would cast nets and caught nothing. Remember, we fished all night and caught nothing. You know, they had those events and they had other times where they had like this great catch of fish. And I think that's encouraging for me to think about the gospel in that sense. Like we just keep giving it out and we see what the Lord does in people's hearts. And uh, we just try to be faithful with the idea that the, the fishermen, they do the fishing part, but the catching, yay, nay, it just depends on the situation. So you just keep doing it. So this is for them involves a redirection of focus from fish to souls, from catching things for physical, temporary needs to catching people for God's kingdom, bringing them into the love and the grace of God. So I also mentioned that all of us don't leave our jobs. Uh, I wanted to give you some more support for that because I think sometimes we just, we misunderstand the text and we make bad decisions. (laughs) So um, Lydia was a seller of purple in the book of Acts, right? And she was ended up being a sponsor of the church and she took her wealth and she helped use that for the kingdom of God. And we have other people in the text of scripture. Erasmus is the treasure of the city. He didn't stop doing that in order to follow Jesus in his life. In fact, he used it for the Lord. And so um, not all of us leave jobs. Most of us probably won't. But we all change focus. And all of a sudden, my job is really about the Lord. My family, we're really about the Lord now. My heart, my life, my hobbies, everything I do, ultimately God's in it. It's for God. That's, that's the difference. That's the focus. The commitment is Jesus overall. Like Colossians 3.17 says, one of my favorite New Testament verses I would always share with the youth, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, uh, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So the idea is we're just everything you do, everything you do. I'm going to do art. I'm going to do, I'm going to do enjoyment, like playing games with my kids or my friends. I'm going to do my career, my job, the way I drive down the street. I remember I went through a season of prayer because of I wouldn't call it road rage because it was me, right? But it was road irritation, road frustration, triggered by other people's bad driving, not my own in any way. Um, but I remember realizing there's like a spiritual issue that was going on here. And when I realized this, I just started praying every time I got upset and uh, was able to give this thing to the Lord. And it just incrementally grew stronger and more spiritual about it. And it wasn't like this gaping hole of unspirituality when I got on the freeway. Um, thankfully, um, the Lord helped me a lot, and I don't actually drive on the freeway very often nowadays, so that also helps. <laughs> but the order here is really important, right? Okay, so Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I think the order is really neat. First you follow, he makes you fishers of men. That's the task. This means that my goal is to simply follow him. It's always follow him, follow him. And sometimes we get caught up in those of us who serve and do ministry, right? we get caught up in the things we're doing in ministry and we think that this equals seeking the Lord and that's all there is to it. So I'm seeking the Lord when I show up at church to serve 
And then when I leave, well, I'll seek the Lord next time. And not realizing, like, it's my whole life, man. It's my heart. It's, it's when I'm awake. It's when I'm sleeping. It's when I, everything I do. Follow him. And you'll feel it because ministry will be like, you'll be pulling res- for resources that don't exist in your heart. And you need to be seeking the Lord. To just resting on his grace, not trying to earn anything, but just simply follow him. He'll make you whatever it is that he's going to be doing with your life. Um, put that first. Okay, cool little side note. Um, the four men that are called, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, um, all four of them are part of the 12 later on. Not yet. The, the 12 have not been called yet. Like they're disciples, but they're not the 12. And um, later on, they'll be 12. They'll be the apostles. Three of them, though, are like the key of the 12. So we have these four guys that would seem random. Well, they, they become part of the 12. Three of them become the three of the 12. What do I mean? I mean, Jesus had not only the 12, but he had these three guys who he would bring into special moments. Special moments like the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Like the Garden of Gethsemane, he had the 12, but he calls these guys a little closer, right? Maybe that's why they heard him um, as he was praying. So they may be brought in early here in the Gospel of Mark as like uh, being eyewitnesses, just like in Acts. It says that was their task. Our job is to be witnesses of Jesus and all he did from the baptism of John and forward. So let's read on some more and we'll keep going. Mark one twenty one. It says, then they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Now, Capernaum is actually the hometown of Peter and Andrew, as well as James and John. So they're going to their hometown. And he's, it seems he's staying with them in their hometown. They, again, they didn't leave their families, but they did change their careers because they were going to follow Jesus full time. Archaeologists think that they've actually found the site of this Capernaum synagogue, the same synagogue that they were in. Jesus was teaching in that synagogue. That's kind of neat, huh? You go to Israel, maybe you can go check it out. A synagogue, by the way, it's a building for Jewish Sabbath gatherings. That's what it is. Sometimes a synagogue was like a person's house or business that was then converted into a synagogue in different locations. Um, during the week, it also served as a schoolhouse and a courtroom for handling minor court issues. And so they could bring you for like Jewish justice to the local synagogue for like handling internal Jewish issues, maybe that wasn't Roman related. I'm thinking maybe they did this when they decided to drive them out of the synagogue. They'd have a little court case right there in the synagogue. Um, But Jesus, he comes on the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, they would have their reading of the scriptures, and they would have a teacher talk, and Jesus, as now a traveling rabbi with disciples, he would, it would be expected and and okay for him to get up and actually teach as a visiting rabbi. They don't know what he's going to say yet, right? (laughs) Or how it's going to bother them in some cases. But Jesus comes, and he's actually going to teach on the Sabbath. This is so exciting, like God with us, teaching us directly, like that. I just let it sink in like you just show up to the synagogue that day. Jesus is there and he's bringing the news that has waited thousands of years to be delivered. You know, God himself. And they're blown away. Verse 22, here's how they respond. They were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now these two verses are all we get about what Jesus taught in that synagogue. Like, not a whole lot. Now, Mark actually doesn't focus a lot on the verbal teachings of Jesus. He talks about Jesus' teaching, but doesn't share a whole lot, compared to, say, Matthew or Luke, of what Jesus actually taught. Um, or John. Actually, John has more about his conversations, maybe, than his public preaching, now that I think about it. Um, but they're amazed. So why are they amazed? Why, why, is, why are they blown away at Jesus' teaching? Well, they say it's because of uh, how he did it. How he taught and how he didn't teach. Is he taught with authority and he did not teach 
like their scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees, we can actually get a, a, a sense of how they taught because we have the, the Jewish Talmud, which some of the data in the Talmud comes back to the time of Jesus and then a little bit later and continuing on for a couple centuries just as they continue to compile it. What they would often do is they would quote rabbis. They wouldn't actually teach with authority, really. They would just be like, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi so-and-so says that. Have anybody here ever read the Talmud at all, of any of it? If you read the Talmud, there's parts of it where it just tells you, like, this is how it is. Right? It's, it's Jewish oral tradition. They call it the oral law written down. It's not from Moses. There's no way on earth is from Moses because it's quoting rabbis that were like after Jesus' time. So it's obviously not Moses. Anyway, that seems pretty obvious to me. But the, uh, the, the Talmud, what it does have in it is these, these sort of um, either or situations where it'll bring up an issue and it'll say, who is the such and such in this verse? And it'll say, Rabbi so-and-so said this. Rabbi so-and-so said that. Rabbi so-and-so said this. Next subject. And you're like, but well, then who is it? Right? Because they would just start to quote each other and they considered this kind of like authoritative tradition and they weren't sure how to reconcile it. So there's a lot of questions and a lot of what's going on here. Jesus, on the other hand, he speaks with authority. He's not just quoting, you know, commentaries all day long. He's like, this is what the text says. This is what it means. But Jesus says something even a step further. He's not just teaching. Okay, some pastors might think with authority, like, well, you got to use your man voice, son. You know, like that's authority. Okay, that's what you think authority is, you know. Um, Jesus, though, what he did was he actually brought not just authoritative, like this is just how it is. But he brought new teaching that wasn't part of what they thought their oral tradition held. And it wasn't even necessarily in the law of Moses. Now, now here I want to be very careful. It didn't disagree with the Old Testament, but it wasn't just quoting the Old Testament. Jesus came to bring new revelation as well. And so he brings his teaching. We read about this in Matthew 5, 6, 7. In fact, after Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, we read the same thing. In Matthew 7, 27 and 28, they say, we're marveling at his teaching because he teaches as one with authority, not as our scribes. So it's the same response, meaning that very possibly Jesus is giving the same kinds of teaching here. In fact, I'd like to say, Jesus was a traveling teacher. When you travel as a teacher, you teach the same stuff over and over again. That's what you do because you have new audiences all the time. So you have a certain amount of material you're trying to get out to an audience and you go to a new audience. You teach more material, new audience, or same material, new audience, new audience. The disciples would have traveled with Jesus, hearing him teach these things how many times? Over three years? A lot. And then at some point, he sends them out and says, go and tell them the stuff I've been teaching you. And he sends them out two by two. Why? Well, I think one of the, re- probably several reasons, but one of them would be, because if this guy forgets something I said, you can remember. If he says something wrong, you can correct him. Then after that, they come back and they travel with Jesus more. And Jesus teaches more. Then after that, he sent, after his death and resurrection, he sends them out and they're carrying the words of Jesus that they've heard over and over and over again and communicating his teachings. And they're still together. They're still grouped up so they can confirm and double check and make sure they get it right. Um, so this is part of the disciples' job is you're learning the, teach, the teaching of that guy. So that's something that they would have heard over and over again. Um, yeah, because the skeptic will sometimes say, like, how could they possibly have remembered Jesus' words? And I'll be like, well, I mean, you know, you could hear Ray, Ray Comfort's Hell, Hell's Best Kept Secret 40 times and then someone asks you, like, how do you know that teaching so well? I'm like, well, yeah. If you travel with him, hearing him teach it 40 times in a row, you're going to know it pretty well too. Um, that's going to be the case. Not to mention, may I add, we sometimes, we, we put, 
we set God aside in these conversations, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance the things that he said. So in addition, there's just the supernatural work of the Spirit to remind them. I don't think God is uh, hindered by our memories when it comes to the inspiration of Scripture. Um, yeah. So they're amazed at his teaching because he's teaching like someone with authority, not as their scribes. Not as their scribes. Let's not be like that. Let's not lapse into the idea where we can never take a stand on what Scripture says. It's, it's fair if you say, I just don't know what it says. That's fine. But what I, when I read sometimes <clears throat> scholar, more scholarly stuff, um, sometimes they, they have just genuine a good humility, and it's proper, right? Maybe it's this, maybe it's that, I'm not sure. Other times, it's almost like their default state, where they just can't actually take a stand on very much, because they're always knowing someone's going to criticize them. And so it can actually be somewhat crippling. And there ends up being almost no authoritativeness in what seems to be the plain truth of Scripture, right? The, the plain truth of the things we're reading. So we want to be careful not to do that as well. I think it's just an important thing to know. All right, so there we go in verse 23. It says, Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Um, okay, so who is, what is the unclean spirit? Well, it, it's the same thing in verse 34 when we get the word demon applied to the same thing. So this is a demon of some kind. Unclean spirit, demon, synonymous terms. Okay, we're not looking, I don't think, at different types of creatures or beings here. Um, <clears throat> What's interesting is what this demon, this unclean spirit, says when Jesus shows up. He says, what business do we have with each other? Now, that might seem a little clumsy in English. I think it probably does seem a little clumsy in English. But it actually comes from like a Hebrew idiom or phrase where it's like, we're not compatible. That's the idea. We're not compatible. And we get this in the Old Testament when, it, when Nehemiah is building the wall, and then they're like, uh, who, what's the name of the group that wants to help him out? I forget. Um, start with an S, the guy that wanted to help him out. Sanballat, yeah. The Horonite or something, maybe, if I remember correctly. Anyway, Sanballat, he's like, hey, I want to help out too. And then you know, Nehemiah is like, what business do you have with us? He's saying, we're not compatible. You're, you're not part of this. You're not part of this thing. So he refuses to allow them to help because they have ulterior motives and it just doesn't work. Our kingdoms don't mix. That's the idea. So that's what he says to Jesus. Our kingdoms don't mix or we don't belong. We can't fit together. What business do we have with each other? And then he admits some really interesting things about Jesus. And this is coming from a demon. This is coming from spiritual forces, not based on human knowledge, but based on some kind of knowledge they have outside of our human realm. What he admits is, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Holy One of God. Now, I did. I spent a decent amount of time this week researching the phrase, the Holy One of God. Because I was like looking for messianic connotations and interested in tracking with it in the Old Testament and really, really curious about it. You know, the only other person, human, who's called the Holy One of God is Aaron in Psalm 106, verse 16. It's the only time. Aaron called the Holy One of God, actually the Holy One of the Lord, of Yahweh. So, the closest parallel right there. Now, Aaron, we know, has typological significance compared to Jesus. But Aaron's called the Holy One of God, or the Holy One of the Lord, in context of his priestly duties. So, in the context of Israel, in the context of 
the temple or the tabernacle at the time, right? Aaron's like the holy one of God because he's the one who goes before God, the chosen one above all the others in order to do the will of God. Remember the Aaron's staff that budded and all that and they thought, oh, anyone can do this job. And he's like, no, 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 Aaron's my chosen one. He's the chosen one of God. That's the idea. But this isn't coming from the context, excuse me, of the tabernacle on earth or of the Jewish people. This is coming from the context of a demon. See, when a human is called the Holy One of God in relation to his priestly duties in the tabernacle, what does it mean when a demon thinks that someone is the Holy One of God? When a demon has nothing to do with the tabernacle on earth. I think the idea is Jesus ranks above all, including demons, obviously, and demons are willing to acknowledge this. A demon wouldn't think I rank above them. We're lower than the angels, humans. We're lower than the angels. And even though Jesus was in his human form, the demon looks at him and he's like, you're like the one. You're the one above all of us. Just like Aaron was in relation to the temple. So they admit that about Jesus. Also, they're scared. Um, They're not just in awe. Like the book of James says, the demons believe and tremble. So they're scared of Christ. Can you imagine what it was like? And I don't want you to spend too much time on this. But imagine what it was like for a demon to see Jesus. He's here. Jesus shows up. Like, we're in our kingdom far from God's presence. And here he is showing up. And he's casting us out. And he's like ruining us. And usually this doesn't happen to us. You know, not not like this. And in this demon in particular, he encounters Jesus individually. The message is um, that Jesus is not only dealing with sin, like John the Baptist showed. He's the sacrifice that purchases forgiveness for us as we just believe and trust in him. He's also dealing with Satan. And that's what Mark, I think, is getting at. That's why, okay, he's, he's, uh, he's coming. He's the sacrifice. He's going to bring us forgiveness, but he's also going to overpower Satan, the ruler of the darkness of this age. That's the idea. Jesus is asked a question by this demon. He says, are you here to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? Now, the word destroy, at least one commentary suggested this, does not mean annihilate. It means like you bring us, you bring us to destruction, like ruin. You devastate us. That's the idea. Um, now, you heard the word us there, destroy us. So it might make you think that this demons, there's multiple demons in the sky. There's like the demoniac we read about later. But it seems as though there's only one because he goes, are you here to destroy us? But he also had says, he also says, I know who you are. So I know who you are. So us meaning our realm. Are you here to ruin our realm? But there's just one of me here right now. Um, so he's, he's trying to figure out what the impact of Jesus is going to be in, the, in their realm. That's the idea. So he thinks Jesus is likely to destroy them all. That's an interesting thing that he admits, isn't it? Jesus, oh, you're here? Does this mean it's come? Our judgment is coming? It's now? In Matthew 8, 29, another demon asks Jesus a similar question. He says, have you come to torment us before the time? Which I think, again, this admits certain things. We can evaluate and go, what are they admitting? They're admitting that they know their future. They know their future, and their future is is the the torment, destruction that God will bring upon them. They know what's going to happen. But what's interesting is that doesn't mean they know God's plans for all things. They know their future judgment, but they don't seem to understand the gospel. 
Like Satan didn't know when he put it into Judas Iscariot's heart to betray Jesus that this was going to bring out the salvation of the world. Like he would have come up with a different plan. So God uses their ignorance and uses them. He's the grandmaster of chess. <laughs> and he's like going to move in the right place to get the results that he wants. Working all things together for good. The, no, the scripture declares that the gospel itself was a mystery that not even the angels knew. And that the prophets themselves, even though they wrote about it, they didn't understand all the implications of what they wrote. And so it was revealed when Jesus died and rose again. And like that road to Emmaus we read, right? When the, when the, the lights go on. This is what all the scriptures were talking about. You know, and it, it, it happens to you and you get it. Um, so he cast them out. He cast out these demons with a word. Um, historical records show a lot of weird things people did to try to deal with demons. Um, and, I, and we're not, not necessarily talking about Jewish cultures here, just Jewish stuff, but just cultures, right? Weird things. We found like skulls where people had literally drilled little holes in people's heads. Like take a piece out of their skull. They survived the, the, the project and they would wear it as like a little amulet. And they think maybe that was to release a demon. Maybe they were thinking that would release a demon. Of course, as I read that, I thought maybe they had migraines because I'm telling you. You're like, I just need some pressure release. That's all I, I get. I get how they could think that. Um, so it could be either way, I suppose. Um, but there were other things they did. Like we read about um, how they would take like strong smelling roots and then stick them up your nose and make you smell them because it would be smell bad and make the demon leave is, is the idea. Jesus, he, they, would, they also didn't do like, or they would do long incantations, these big long projects to try to like deal with what they thought at least was a demon possession. Um, Jesus is like, be silent. Get out. He doesn't have to stir it up. He doesn't have to like repeat himself. He just says it. It happens. He has power. It's genuine. That's the idea. And that's the thrust of Mark. That's the point here. That's the point here. In verse 27, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So this is making Jesus famous, make, make well known in the region. And so as he goes now preaching, they know they anticipate him. Jesus, at Capernaum, it seems like they didn't really anticipate quite who he was, but they're getting it. They're finding out. Um, this affirms Jesus' authority and his identity. That's the idea in Mark chapter 1, right? Authority, identity. The, the demon knows who he is. This man is the Holy One of God above all spiritual beings, not just in an earthly sense, but from, from the demon's perspective. He's the one who could destroy us and one day will, is it now? Not knowing Jesus' plan for salvation. Jesus teaches with authority, not like their scribes. And then what does he do? He casts out a demon with authority. Here's the question. What does that say about his teaching? It says he's right. It says all that stuff he said that you thought, wait a minute, that's, man, you're teaching like way crazy stuff, Jesus. Like that's pretty extreme, the stuff you're saying. And then he casts out a demon. Okay. Okay, I guess he was right, you know, and that's what Jesus does. This is like a little tiny picture of the entire ministry of Jesus because he's going to go out. He does healings. He does his death and resurrection in order to confirm the fact that what he said is true when he says things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His teachings with authority, they're valid because of, or I should say they're seen to be valid. You understand their validity because you see what he's done with uh, his miracles including his death and resurrection. I think that's a primary one that today we, uh, and it's amazing God has provided evidence, so much evidence for it 2,000 years later. I'm still blown away by that. Their response though is not so good. Um, 
They go, this is a new teaching. He has authority. He casts out demons with a word. The response is, we're amazed. Let's debate about it. Right? They debate about it. They debate amongst themselves. And you might think, well, they're debating, but it'll probably end good, right? They're going to follow Jesus because it's just obvious. Well, unfortunately, Jesus being the obvious truth doesn't necessarily make people follow him. Some people with more evidence still choose not to follow Christ. And others with sometimes even less evidence, just their hearts are just yielded to Jesus Christ, you know, just right away. And, um, and it's sad. It ends this way for many people. They just debate amongst themselves. Well, that's interesting. Let's just debate about it. We'll just have a discussion and a debate. And they're like, they never leave debate mode. They never leave debate and, and oh, thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it forever and ever and ever. And uh, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. And sometimes they're, maybe they're looking for truth or maybe they're looking for excuses. Because as long as I'm still debating it, I can keep doing what I want to do with my life. But once I stop the debate, uh, I, may be, I may need to be confronted with the very real realities of the consequences of these truths. In John chapter 6, we read about this. Uh, Jesus says that Capernaum, it was at Capernaum in John 6, you guys know the passage, right, where he teaches about his, his flesh and blood. And they go, this is a hard teaching, Jesus. Right? And then Jesus continues to push on that. And he also tells him his words are spirit, not and the flesh profits nothing, giving us a way to interpret what he's been saying. But... But he goes ahead and gives him a hard teaching. And in John 6.66, we read about a whole bunch of people who walk away from him. Well, that happened at Capernaum. So they were interested, they're amazed, they're interested, but they don't seem to continue following him. Later on in Luke chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus includes Capernaum in a group of cities who rejected him. And so while they saw his miracles, they did not, it seems, at least the larger part of the group didn't seem to follow him. The message there is equal is, is easy. You need to follow Jesus. You need to commit. He'll take you as you are. He'll take you as you are with no qualifications, just like the fisherman. He'll make you into, into whatever he's going to make you be, following him. Whatever gifts he wants to give you, as he gives to all of us as we come to Christ. He'll do the work in you. Your task is just follow him. Trust his authority. Trust his goodness. And just follow and track with him. And he does all the rest of the work. Um, we need to keep our Christianity simple. Especially in a in life where life gets complicated, um, we need to get really simple. And if you feel like your life is super complex right now, my encouragement is you need to get really simple, really, really simple, and just follow Jesus and let Him do with your life what He wants to do. You don't need the qualifications; you just need His grace, you just need His love, and you have God Himself reaching His hand out to you, saying, "Hey, come follow me." Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you, Jesus, that you not only said this to uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John, but to each of us, you're calling us to know you and to follow you. You sent those same disciples into the world saying, tell everyone, everyone. Preach the gospel, make disciples out of everyone. And so, Lord, your calling is to each one of us already to be your disciples with our zero qualifications. In fact, we're unqualified in every way with our sin and our failures. Yet you, you do all the work in us. You transform us from the inside out. And we just pray that we keep it simple. We keep our hearts and minds focused on you, that we wouldn't overcomplicate our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.